Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's swechangehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 71, with the title, Not an Ally, Be an Accomplice and Co-Conspirator. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Erica Simon. Erica describes herself as a clinical psychologist and consultant whose work is strongly rooted in social justice. When I asked Erica to describe her superpower, she said she is very comfortable with uncertainty, ambiguity and discomfort, and she truly cares and wants to get it right, not just feel like I am right. Hello, Erica. Welcome to the show. Oh, hello, Joanne. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so delighted to be here. Awesome. Fabulous. So, Erica, I know we were chatting just now. So what do you, what do you mean by not just being an ally, but you want to be an accomplice and co-conspirator? It's a really interesting uh, conversation that's being had these days around allyship. And what's really particularly important about this conversation around allyship is that allyship is what you do in your actions. We can't just call ourselves an ally. It's what are we actually doing? So allyship is also kind of rooted in this. um, It has this, this tone to it as if I'm here to help you. I'm here to support you. And one of the things that has really been an important part of my journey around social justice is understanding how much we have to have skin in the game. If we're going to truly seek out true justice for all, equality for all, if we're going to see a world where all of our identities are celebrated and welcomed, then we all have to have some skin in the game. And so we don't get to just say, hey, I'm here and I support you. We have to do that in every action that we take as best as we can. And so I strongly subscribe to the quote uh, Martin Luther King Jr. of none of us are free until we are all free. And it's not about me saying you need help. It's about me saying that I'm not free either. This world is not okay until we all have achieved the recognition that we deserve for being a whole person and showing up for who we are and that that's really important. So my actions have to align with that. My actions have to demonstrate that we're in this together. That's fantastic. And uh, I I think we, we probably all heard this mantra that, being an ally is a verb. It's about doing, isn't it? And too often we can forget that. Too often we can just take a day off or not or not step up. And as you quite rightly say, it's people who come from these marginalised, underrepresented communities, characteristics, live and breathe the challenges day in, day out. And they do not have the privilege to be able to take that off and put it down for a day and then pick it up when it suits. So it's so important, as you say, to be a co-conspirator. Because I think the other thing, you, part of what you're saying there is, it's not just about supporting you or understanding your pain. It's about understanding what's causing your pain, and how you and I and we can step up and remove the root cause, not just the sticky plaster or the savlon or the little um, cream we put on. It's, it's, and it's, it's tackling proactively our government's, uh, lawmakers, the people in authority that create these social constructs, these injustices in the first place. Absolutely. There are systems and structures that are in place that maintain 
oppression, that maintain inequality, that maintain uh, the the biases and the discrimination. This isn't it's the systems are working exactly how they were designed to work. And it's that's just simply not okay. And we have to go in and really, as you're saying, root out the causes. And we have to examine our unearned privileges that we have, the the ways that we get to show up and sort of, in a lot of ways, kind of be invisible when we want to be, um, depending on which, you know, privileges, you know, we wear. And exactly as you're saying, we can take a day off if you want to be an ally. And this is why the term is just such a problem. We can just decide to take a day off or maybe we decide that in this moment, we're not going to speak up. And that is a that is an, a tremendous privilege that people do not understand that they have, that we can pick and choose when we say something or not say something. It's a, my mother always said growing up, character is who you are in the dark. It was a big mantra of our of our family, character is who you are in the dark. And it's a kind of in a way the opposite of what I'm saying now, which is that, you know, sometimes character is, well, no, character is doing the hard thing. It's saying the thing. It's it's being, living your values and the things that matter, even when it's really, really hard to do that. And I think that is a big part of the conversation as well, to be a co-conspirator and accomplice. I love that that phrase. It's it's shouting at me saying, you've got to do the heavy lift. Even when no one's thanking you or looking at you or seeing you, you do it because you do it, not for recognition. I think I think it's important. And I, I always say when I talk about allyship, and I, I know we're trying to move past allyship, is that there is there is no medal. You know, and I also don't, I don't believe you can call yourself an ally. I think ally is bestowed on you. It's like uh, I don't think you can call yourself an entrepreneur. I think someone else calls you an entrepreneur. They call you an ally. And if you feel worthy enough, then you can step up to it. So I think, yeah, characters who you are in the dark when no one's watching. And when you're not looking for recognition, it's your default base instinct. And I think that is really, really powerful. And I mean, what's the, what's the political climate or the social climate where you are? You're in California. Is that right? I am. So, yeah. So I'm in, I'm in the UK and England. We've, we've moved past the, uh, the previous, presidential administration but is that is that rhetoric is still there isn't it I mean we have we've the impact for the supreme supreme court the roe versus wade uh trans rights this each state is now what many states are very right-wing very kind of uh anti-woke for whatever better way of putting it um so what does it feel like if you're a in a minority in the States at the moment? You know, it's, um, it's an interesting time to live. And I'm using that word very specifically. It's an interesting time to be living in the U S because we sort of simultaneously have seen this explosion of a new civil rights movement. We've seen this, uh, tremendous change in how we even acknowledge individuals who are transgender. We have completely changed how much racism has been exposed. It used to be, I wrote a paper in um, actually in undergrad about how, you know, racism had become so insidious to where we could talk about being post-racial, for example. And it, in a way that it ends up being a bigger problem because then people can just not acknowledge the oppression uh, the different groups experience. What's interesting is we have this civil rights movement that's happening. And at the same time, we have this terrible rhetoric that's so extreme that is has been emboldened to not only have hateful, bigoted you know, beliefs, but to say them, to speak them, and to have them be emboldened from the most powerful position in the country. And some would say the world, that's a whole different conversation. But 
to have those at the same time, it's that and both of those things there uh, are true. It's interesting. The um, uh, I'm a clinical psychologist, and uh, there's a treatment uh, and t- intervention called uh, dialectical behavioral therapy. It's very powerful, and one of the concepts out of this particular um, this particular uh, form of, of therapy is how to help people live in an and to see an and in the situation. And one of the concepts is truth stands side by side. It can be 100% true that the U.S. is in this brilliant civil rights, you know, movement is happening at this exact moment. And we also have the most hateful rhetoric emboldened in every way. And it's everywhere. It's amazing how it's everywhere. Um, and I think both of those are true and, and it's palpable. It's really palpable. And, and you, you see it so many hate crimes that occur, um, while at the same time, we're also starting in this beautiful way to acknowledge, I mean, I just see how far we've come around transgender rights and acknowledgement across my 17 years as a, as a clinician, and to see where we're at at this moment, where people are sharing their pronouns, that we actually don't even call them preferred pronouns anymore, that they're just pronouns. Um, I think that there's something, at some point, we kind of uh, expose in this very raw way, a lot of the pain that people have experienced in silence. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to do something about it. Over my own lived experience, I see a, a a polarity between what's going on in my life, which for me I appreciate I'm privileged. I don't I don't have any issues being me. I'm married, two children, or adult children who've left home. I've got a, a good source of income. I've got a, a great network of friends, a global business. I don't have any trouble being me. And I know many people who are also transgender professionals in in business also have a very positive life. And you look at what's going on in the world of business, big corporates, organizations, the, the trans support is positive. You know, everyone wants to learn more, find out, have great policies, respect their people, the staff networks, the prides. Everybody, everybody has a momentum around trans rights. But then you turn on the television and we see our politicians, you know, the we had a, a, a leadership competition in the summer and the six or seven contenders for that were trying to prove who could be the most anti-trans as part of the debates. It was like, we've got major global issues. We've got Ukraine and, and Putin. We've got uh, fuel issues going on. We've got poverty. We've got um, civil rights issues. And you want to talk about, denying trans people their rights and have a competition so you could be the most transphobic. I think suddenly I'm being debated about as a political football and this is quite crazy. And it's it's kind of like, I don't know if you heard the expression, the dead cat, when you have a, when you have a story, a new story, you talk about the dead cat, not about the story. So everyone was trying to avoid the big issues and just talk about this dead cat of trans people. I'm not saying we're dead cats, but it's kind of like that distraction technique. And now we have a, Whilst our new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, is unknown, I suppose, in some of these areas, but he's quite measured, I believe. We still have some far-right people in his party, in government, who are still openly talking about trying to wind back transgender protection. And you think, well, hang on a minute. This is going against what the majority of the world, well, sorry, the UK world, maybe some of the other Western world are talking about already. The countries are passing laws to make it easier to, ob- to obtain legal recognition for their gender. And our government is trying to make it harder and harder and harder. And even talk about removing some rights. You think, hang on a minute. This isn't what the mood of the country is. This is, this is this seems to be the extremists with the loud voices, which, and I think your, your previous administration is placed to the fears and unites these different sorts of hate into one big hate. I think that's what we end up doing. I do agree completely. It's um, there's so many disconnects between in a lot of ways between governments and 
people um, who are, you know, who are within a country and their beliefs and their opinions and their thoughts. And uh, I think there's, it, it's interesting because in the U.S. it's like, it, there's this push pull that's constantly happening. Like what you're saying, where like over here, the government, you know, the people are saying, Hey, can we just, let's just all be. And then you have this pull this direction with the government saying, okay, yeah, let's give some right. You know, let's, let's, we're going to give rights. We're going to acknowledge, we're going to protect. And then that gets pulled back. And there's sort of this push me, you know, push and pull mm. between, you know, do we or don't we? And I just trying to hold in my mind the experience of being a political point of discussion just for being who I am, just how exquisitely painful just that fact must be. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when you, you're trying to, bring forward big changes in terms of the way society is constructed. When we think about, I look at some of the pushback on anti-racism and we've got white people going, hang on a minute, we're being oppressed now because black people are getting all the help. And it's like, hang on a minute. No, no, you're not being oppressed. And as a, as a great sense of, uh, phrase I've heard is when you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And I think that's what's going on. It's where people are starting to feel this, the equality or the, the equity in society. And they're now having to look either side, have to compete. Whereas before they could, they, they were way ahead and there was no one around them. So it's not like they're not being pulled back, but other people have been pushed forward to the start line and it's, it's becoming more level. And I think so we see that with, with people who are white. When we talk about anti-racism, I think we see that in terms, certain terms where we're talking about trans or gay rights or LGBTQ rights, where straight people are going, hang on a minute, we need pride as well. And or cis people are saying, hang on a minute, these trans people are, are taking over. We're talking about trans people. So like, why can't we talk about me and my troubles? It's like, again, a bit like Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter. Yeah, it's, it's Me Too type campaigns. And I think what we're seeing here is, is we must be making a difference because these conversations are happening. People must be starting to acknowledge their privilege or their feeling their privilege being challenged because we are striving to make change. And I think to me, that says we're doing something, but we've also got to have that pain of the pushback. haven't we? that, you say the push me, pull you where we end up taking a bit and then we're almost stamped on, hang on a bit. You, you've taken too much. Go back. Yes, it's so true. And that is one of my, I, I regularly use that quote that you, that, when you're used to having a whole lot of unearned privilege, then equality feels like oppression is spot on because we don't realize it's one of, I don't know, his name is, uh, uh, is it James Fisher Wallace? Pretty close on his name. He uh, had a commencement speech in, I don't know, it was like 2005. And he tells a story about there are these two fish, young fish, and they're swimming in the water. And this older fish swims by and says, hey, you know, hey, how, how's the water? And the two fish swim on and they look at each other and went, what's, what's water? And I think this is my, this is foundationally how I view privilege. Because we don't realize the water we're swimming in. We cannot see it until we see it. And that's the thing. It's what, you know, whether it's gender or sexual identity or it's, you know, race or it's religious identity or cultural identity or a whole host of things, right? Age, size, there's all sorts of disability or ability, there are so many different ways that our identities impact us. And when you don't hold a certain identity, it is impossible to see how that identity is impacted by the world, by the environment, until something helps you to see it. And I really think that's where people are. Until you have, I think everybody should have to spend a few days trying to navigate the world in a wheelchair. Yeah, I've got, a, 
Pardon me? I've got I've got a great friend who has cerebral palsy and I've traveled around London with her. She has a powered wheelchair, getting on and off a bus, getting on the underground, um, navigating rooms that are too tight for a chair to fit through. I spent a day with her and I came home thinking, I have a privilege. I can walk. I don't think about my legs, my legs, my body, my ability to move, me to be is a privilege. She doesn't have that. She is problem solving from the moment she wakes up to the moment she, she falls asleep again because everything she does in her life is is complex compared with my life. Exactly, exactly. And this is where it's not about allyship. It's about being an accomplice or a co-conspirator. I love, uh, there's a TED Talk. Uh, names are escaping me today. I don't know why. Uh, but there's a TED Talk. And it's really amazing how it, the title is something like, I'm not your, uh, it's basically like, I'm not your, um, I'm not your point of like pity. I can't remember exactly what the the title is, but it's something like that. It's this amazing, amazing TED Talk. And this woman was saying how people, when it comes to disability, we sort of will pity people or we will sort of glorify, right? And we'll see it as like, oh, uh, I'm not your inspiration. Thank you very much. That's what it was. Something like that. Because we do one of two things. With disability, we either pity the person or we glor- we we see them as their inspiration, right? Oh, if they can do it, then we can do it, mm-hmm. right? And I think what you are speaking to so much is how we, when we step inside the experience of someone and go, oh my goodness, and we don't see it, it like the way you were describing your friend's experience was so beautiful because you're talking about it from this place of, wow, like, my friend has complexities to navigate from the time that she wakes up in the morning. And this is where we can, we can see this as just seeing the facts of the situation. She struggles constantly. She has to figure out how to navigate all these things. I remember when um, there was another TED talk and they were uh, the person who was speaking said, that the ADA uh, accessible ramp was the loading dock. And when you stop to think about this, someone in a a motorized wheelchair who has to navigate around the back of the building, around a whole bunch of semis and things being loaded and unloaded to try and get into a building we should be enraged by this. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't see this as, okay, well, you know, people with disabilities, they, they need some extra, they need some extra accommodation. Why in the world would we build stairs instead of a ramp? When you think about it, you, you build a ramp and everybody can, accept, can, can access the building. You build stairs and only some people can. We see disability like we have to give the okay, we're going to give you some some accessible something or we get really angry that the you know the doors to the bathroom have to be a certain width or we get really annoyed because, you know, a whole host of reasons we can get annoyed about it. Why in the world do we think the it is okay for only some people to have access to a building that doesn't require a Herculean effort? Uh, yeah, I, and I, I think what we also forget sometimes is that workplace adjustments or societal adjustments that benefit people who have a disability also benefit people who don't have a disability. Um, if I've got my luggage, I want to go massive suitcase. I don't have to lug it up the stairs. I can use that as well. Or if I'm, if I uh, am not feeling great one day, or maybe I've twisted an ankle or something, I can now access something as well. So. We're not making solutions here for a minority. We're making solutions that everybody can use and benefit from. And I, I think that's the important thing to remember is that we, we're we not – we often think about oh, it's for the people who are disabled. It's not. It's for – it's to create accessibility in our society, accessibility in our workplace that means that my friend doesn't have to ask for help to use the toilet. And that's that I was I was when I'm thinking about a an accessible workplace or accessible conference or anything I do, 
I always think, could my friend go to the toilet without asking someone for help in this venue? And I think about the route, I think, no, she's going to have to ask someone to help her open that door. Or she's going to have to ask someone, which is not too bad. I mean, just opening a door is not too bad. But there are certain, certain places she goes where she really needs more help than that. And I, I was with her once, and a well-meaning, able-bodied designer designed an accessible uh, elevating platform to take you up above, up the stairs. And she pointed out to me the fact that the person who designed this must have made an assumption that the person who had a disability would have had a PA or someone with them to help them. Because the button she needed to push to call the lift was higher than she could reach in as a wheelchair. Also because she has limited movement in her, in her arms. She can't lift her arms really above her shoulders. So she couldn't use the button to call the lift. And she yes, the door would open. When she got in there, again, the buttons to move floors weren't accessible. And they, they required her to have someone with her. Because they were behind her. So she goes in forwards and the buttons are behind. So assuming someone's going to be with her. So yes, we're designing these systems to help people. But we're also making people feel as though they have a disability because they can't use the systems on their own without asking for help. So that's disabling somebody through lack of planning. And and I, and I always say, I always use her as a, a yardstick for me to thinking about would this work for my friend? And it's because I think when we when we're designing systems in our workplace, when we're just even in projects, whatever we do in our work, we don't often have a voice in the room speaking up for people who aren't represented. So I'm left-handed. I've bought products that clearly weren't designed for left-handed people, and they work fine if you're right-handed. They don't work fine if you're left-handed. So you think even something as simple as being left-handed is often forgotten about. You are just so spot on. I'm also left-handed and my partner, it's hilarious because he really, so many times I'll be like really frustrated with something and he really cannot understand why this particular can opener just won't work for me. He's like, it's just a can opener. Well, it's just a can opener to you, but it was made for someone who's right-handed. And so when I flip it over, the mechanism doesn't work the same way. And it's something so silly, like a, a can opener, but everything is made for right-handed people, except for a few little special things. And then even those left-handed things, sometimes they're hard to use because we're so used to trying to navigate a right-handed world. And then all of a sudden this, the, the scissors are, are flipped over and I'm like, I don't actually know how to use these scissors. And I think this is so exactly it. And I love what you're saying because you're talking about being an accomplice. When you go to a conference or the workplace, you're thinking about, how do I make sure that this would be accessible to my friend where she wouldn't have to ask for help? And that's the thing that's seeing her humanity. It's not about sort of, I think in a lot of ways, we, we kind of infantilize individuals who have disabilities as if they need our, you know, how are we, they just need some help, right? So why can't they just ask for someone to open the door for them? And in the end, you know, being able to be autonomous and work, move through the workplace without having to constantly navigate difficult or awkward situations, we need to put the person, like you said, whose voice is not at the table, whose voice, it's not just about having diversity, like the whole DEI thing that is exploding right now in a lot of beautiful ways, but it also gets very tokenized. You have now I have the one person who's black. I have the one person who's transgender. I have the one person with disability. But if we don't have those voices at the table, if we don't amplify those voices and center them and say, what are we what are we missing here? What are we not seeing? Where is the water that I am existing in? Please and we can't ask for that emotional labor either. It's sort of this interesting thing that's happening right now, too where it's, you can't just ask, you can't just tokenize someone. You have to understand how do you actually, how do I do my own work to understand the water that I'm swimming in that I don't see? And then how do I really listen? And then in the workplace, especially, how do I make sure that everybody is represented? Everybody's voice is heard and amplified. And then 
what's actually happening in the workplace is representative of everybody's needs and preferences. It's, it's super important. Mm -hmm. We can't just, we can't just take a couple of those steps. Yeah. I, I, I talk a lot about CQ, cultural intelligence. And for me, I know at the high level, you think about culture, you think about ethnicity and faith and all these big, big culture type things. And I, I always boil culture down to the little micro communities of disability, of deafness, of blindness, of, of transiness or whatever it is, not just the big experiences. And often we, we start focusing on these big, big labels without looking down at the nuances in different communities. So someone who is, is, is born deaf has a different challenge than someone who's acquired their hearing impairment or their deafness throughout their life. Someone who was born blind and never seen has a different experience than someone who has become blind later in life. So if we're not careful, we make these big, big assumptions, oh, they're blind. They can't see that. Oh, sorry, I, I talked about colour. You, you don't know what colour is, do you? When, yes, I do. I can see for 30 years of my life. I know the grass is green. I remember what green looks like. So again, by, by, by not drilling down into the communities of culture, we can sometimes make these assumptions, false assumptions. So... I always find that when I when I learn something about someone or a, a characteristic or about uh, whatever that may be, a lived experience, the first element for me of, of CQ is is about drive. That I want to find out more. So if I learn, if someone says to me, "This space doesn't work for me. I'm neurodiverse. This space is too loud, too noisy. It's too, it's too random for me. I can't I can't can't process all this going on in here." I go, "Okay, I need to find out more about this. I need to understand why. I need to yeah." So when I'm in a space in future. I can go, this isn't going to work for neurodiverse people or neurodiverse people I've spoken to in the past would struggle with this environment because. So I, I, I'm not going to say I'm, I'm trying to become an expert in someone's lived experience, but I, I know more than I didn't know before. So it's allowing me to have those next conversations to say, I think we should do some thinking about this uh, and get an expert in to talk about this. That, that, that's how I would approach things. I love that too, because we can't be a, an expert in everybody's lived experiences. And there are a lot of textured nuances to different global, you know, different lived experiences within more global kind of catch, you know, catch uh, sort of um, how we describe identities. Uh, even so I've worked, I, I think, well, I'll, I'll mention that in a minute. Um, it's so interesting because with the neurodiversity conversation that you're bringing up. And I, I don't want to have that part pass by because neurodiversity is a real thing that we're starting to really unpack and understand um, and celebrate. Uh, there's uh, this idea of why, why, why are we trying to extinguish differences? There are so many beautiful ways that our brains work. And instead of seeing this as how we're trying to flatten that experience and try and find something, you know, normal or, or typical. And with neurodiversity, it's so true. Somebody actually called me out on this. Um, and I was very grateful for the, for the, the lesson. Uh, I do a lot of, um, I do a lot of presentations. I do a lot of support sessions. I do a lot of talks. And in one of them I was doing for a, for a group, we were talking about, um, uh, how to have difficult conversations and one of the things that one of the point being made was around uh, active listening, having open body language, having direct eye contact, you know, reflecting back all these different things, you know, being really kind of sitting and being present. And afterwards, somebody said that's a very neurotypical way of talking about conversation. And I was just so grateful because I hadn't thought of that really before. I work with a lot of individuals who are on the spectrum and it hadn't even really fully occurred to me that for someone, and I know this to be the case, for someone who might be on the spectrum, direct eye contact can be uncomfortable or actually you know, traumatizing. And if you're trying to force something that doesn't work for someone, and I was forever grateful for this because I learned something very powerful in that moment of the water that I was swimming in, you know? And I think that's what we need to try and learn and figure out. How do we find these ways where we can have these opportunities 
to learn about these more subtle aspects of other people's lived experiences that might not be our own. Yeah, my, my, my wife gets quite frustrated with me sometimes because she will say something about a person. Maybe they were not very attentive to her, no, didn't give me I could maybe they're a bit dismissive or something about them. She goes, Oh, that, that person. And I said, Well, okay, I, that, I take take on board what you're saying there, but that's a bit of a judgment. You don't know anything about their lived experience, you know, what's going on in their heads, you know. They may not be a great communicator for various reasons. So the fact they haven't communicated with you in a way that you're comfortable with doesn't mean to say they're a bad person or being ignorant or being nasty to you. It just means that that is their style. So what we have the opportunity here is to, is to meet people in the middle, adapt your style halfway to their style, and see if you can encourage them to, to speak in a, in a kind of centrist, centrist way. And I'm, I'm also guilty when I talk about EQ, emotional intelligence, having to recognize that neurotypical people tend to use emotions, but maybe neurodiverse people don't use emotions in the same way. So expect someone to pick up the emotional cues, the body language cues, is is, is something that is, is, is kind of – neuro uh what's the, what's the equivalent of heteronormative here yeah, neuronormative um uh behavior that we're trying to judge people by what we expect and i think it's really really important as you're saying just to, just to remember that when you're, when you're making these judgments or making these, these big decisions about people we've got to try and think about their lived experience first absolutely absolutely and you know, again, going back to the, the, the workplace, having a, a workplace that's really welcoming of our identities, the workplace is, is fraught with un, uncountable <laughs> numbers of, number of, of ways that it says you don't belong if you're, you know, ADHD or you're on the spectrum or there's maybe you just have an incredible amount of, of social anxiety and you're still asked to stand up and, and give some sort of talk. Even something as, uh, as you know, that kind of anxiety that we can feel around who we're speaking with and what we're talking about. It's, we just, what would happen if we just stopped for a moment in our interactions, in our daily lives and went, what don't I understand or know about this situation or this conversation or this person? And we truly approached everything from a place of curiosity, genuine curiosity and compassion. How different would this world be? Yeah, it's, I mean, we're obviously kindred spirits and like-mindedness and it's for for us to have this conversation, maybe that's a privilege as well for, for us being able to have this conversation where it means we're far enough back from that cold face of injustice that we can start to, to self-analyze or become self-aware. But often the, the cases where, where people are living it in that moment, in that toxic environment, and whether you're a fan of Maslow's hierarchy or not, you're living right at that 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 those bottom two layers where your safety and psychological safety is really really important to you. Then you don't often have the chance to, to step back and think. You're you're just living in the moment. You have no you have no you have no next week. It's all today, isn't it? It's very true. I think what you're speaking to is is how much trauma exists in the workplace. And we don't often think about it or talk about it as trauma. Uh, there's trauma with a big T and trauma with a little T. And trauma with a big T is is something where you've experienced some sort of, you know, something that it, where your physical integrity or your life has uh, felt at stake, uh, your safety, etc. And then little T is you know things where they're more than just a typical stressor. You know, something like a you know kind of a nasty divorce, for example. In the workplace, we have both. A lot of people's identities are, are constantly being threatened in the workplace. And again, it's that water we, we don't realize we're swimming in if we don't have those lived experiences. There are so many ways the workplace says this, you do not belong here. And if you're just trying to navigate that and understand what's safe or unsafe, mm -hmm. and it's really 
just unsafe, that is, that is trauma with a big T. Hmm. Your physical, your, your integrity, your, your life, your, your, who you are is being threatened in the workplace. And, you know, it, the whole approach around DEI is not just about saying, let's have some representation. It's about how do we have a workplace where people truly feel safe to show up as who they are as a whole person and not carve away different parts of their identity in order to, to fit in. I, I was surprised recently. I, I, I hired a, a couple of people to come on to, into my business to help do some social media and some marketing and some videos and graphics. Some really clever, intelligent people. And I truly believe or believed that I set, set the tone as an open culture. This is most heart, most wholeheartedly not a top-down company this is a we're all sitting on the floor we're all cross-legged we're all talking about what we need to talk about well there's no right or wrong answers there's no you know psychological safety is high if you want to say anything to me you've got as much right to tell me that my idea sucks as i've got to tell you your idea sucks and i had a chat i was having a chat and i sort of said come on tell me no no i can't i can't tell you i can't tell you i I, i'm too i'm too nervous to, to tell you what i'm thinking so there I was with my arms open saying, come on, surely surely you can say anything. Now you've told me you can't tell me. Now I want to know more. And and they've just said, that sometimes with my exuberance, I'm, I'm kind of creating a little bit too much pressure or too excitement about something. And they feel they're always having to try and keep me happy and feed, feed my, uh, uh, my, my ideas. And I said, oh, wow, no, that's, seriously, thank you. No, I, I had no idea that's how you, you, you perceived me as someone who was – creating loads of pressure you didn't want to let me down there's fear of failure and all this kind of stuff and I said wow thanks thank you it's, it's kind of that's really well a upset me a bit because I thought I was creating this culture where you could say anything but b it was the self-awareness of going well actually as, as hard as I thought I was trying I still missed not not in a bad way but in a not a per- not a perfect way and I think one one of the things you're talking about with the, with the fish are swimming in their water and they don't see the water is that maybe people who hold the privilege and and I'm not one to demonize straight white men because we need straight white men to change the world because they are they have the biggest swords and shields in the world so we need them to do the change um but many many people believe they're a great person and they think they're doing fantastic work that they don't realize that power dynamic and that culture they've created no matter how much they didn't want it does exist so that recent lesson that i learned was you have to not only believe your critical culture but you have to be active and proactive about it and reach out and make sure the culture you hope you're breeding is in fact reality not just in your head people around you believe it as well i really love that because i think it also speaks to um this whole idea of wanting to get it right not to just feel like we're right uh i when I, that is so foundational to this work. We have to, because it is, we, we need to seek out, we, we sort of, you know, I'm a, a trained as a scientist and I appreciate my mentors in graduate school because they really taught me true science, you know, how to be a true scientist. Whereas you, you try and Figure out how you can prove yourself wrong if you're actually wrong. How do you figure out that? That's what true science is. You create a study where you're saying, okay, I, there, here's my hypothesis. I'm going to do everything in my power to prove it wrong. And then if it's, if I have, you know, some sort of, you know, a significant finding, I'm going to be able to lean into that more, but I'm still going to try to figure out how I got it wrong. Because that is what we do. We have to constantly refine and think about everything in a different way. How can we, uh, I don't remember who this quote was by, but they said, um, in order to improve, at least one of our basic core assumptions has to change. We have to be constantly thinking about where am I stuck? What am I not seeing? How can I get this information so that I can see more clearly? Hmm. And the, the other thing about the science community or communities of scientists is that they're willing you 
to disprove it as well. And when you do find a new solution or a new a new formula or, or a new mantra, you're celebrated by the people whose previous mantra has been superseded because it's in striving to find a betterment is by examining and not not believing that everything you have is fact. And I think I think that's, we could learn that as a society. And you know, we we know about confirmation bias. We love being right, don't we? We, we, we we're scared of being wrong because it makes us feel weak. And there's a there's a great saying. Uh, I don't know if you've come across this. It's uh, there's a forecaster called Paul Sappho, and he coined uh, "strong opinions weakly held." So it's all about knowing what you but you got your beliefs, you got everything, but you, you're not a prisoner to them. You're challenging yourself. You're looking to prove yourself wrong all the time. And and I always say it's not about going down conspiracy theories. You know, I, I'm I'm proudly vaccinated. As much, if, you, if there's a vaccine, give it to me. Both arms, both legs, if you have to. I'm going to go straight in there. Some people aren't, and I, and I, but I want to find out why they believe that. And not because I want to agree with them, but I want to understand why their perspective is. So Novak Djokovic, when he was deported from Australia for not being vaccinated, I completely disagree with the outcome he's come up with, you know, his decision. But actually, when I listened to his interview and he said, I want his agency over my own body, I went, I can't disagree with that. I can't disagree with his logic because it's his body. He should have, I, I want the right to do what I want to do with my body. Okay, the impact is maybe on other people, but for, the, for that moment, he has the right to decide what he does with his body. And I thought, yeah, okay, I go with that. I think what you're speaking to here as well is that a lot of these conversations are really tricky. Hmm. And what we tend to do as humans is we make things oversimplified and very either or. And, you know, it's all this or all that. And most people are not comfortable wading into the discomfort of ambiguity and uncertainty. And that's why I call this my superpower, because I am supremely comfortable wading into conversations where it's like, ooh, I, I have no idea what the answer is. Uh, how do I get more information? This conversation is really tough because bodily autonomy, again, that true stand side by side, bodily autonomy is really important. We're having conversations in the U.S. about, you know, with Roe v. Wade being overturned and we, women, we don't, we're, you know, forced pregnancies are a real thing here. So bodily autonomy is absolutely important and mm. public health and community and caring about each other and that my choices for my body in this instance with vaccines impact other people and their safety right? You can't yell fire in a, in a crowded theater. You have to wear, you know, you, 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 there's all sorts of things. You have to stop at stop signs. If there's a pedestrian crossing, there are things we have to do, you know, when it comes to masks, well, well, are you, you, are you a person wearing a shirt? You know, well, then you don't have full bodily autonomy, you know, to make your choices on what you wear or don't wear. And I think these are those conversations where everybody's either this or that. And we don't have a lot of people who are willing to say, this is really hard to figure out. Let's put our heads together and see if we can come up with something that solves for this dilemma. And that's exactly what I found about Djokovic. I said, you've got the right not to be vaccinated, but the consequence is you can't play in the tennis match. You can't stay in Australia. And the chances are you won't be allowed to play in many other matches around the world. And people may cancel their sponsorship because that's your decision. So the consequence of you having bodily autonomy, which you're entitled to, are that you cannot, you cannot, you can no longer participate freely in society in the way you once did. You know, having autonomy doesn't mean say you can kill somebody or, or be nasty to somebody or hurt somebody. Society says no. But even you can have autonomy, but there are consequences. So it's it's making sure that those consequences are explicit and well known, so you can't be caught out by them. Uh, but you have a responsibility as a human, as a citizen, as a as a participant in our culture. I know what's expected of me. It's it's in the same debate I have around trans rights, and I understand my responsibility as a woman in female spaces. I I. And I know I shouldn't have to, but I blend. I, I, I make myself as minimalistic as possible in those spaces. I don't want to be a threat or be seen to be a threat to anybody. I take my responsibility to be allowed unfettered access to places by the way I behave. If I went in there and behaved 
in a in a way that made me stand out and a threat, then I, I would expect not to be welcomed. And I would expect people to look at me and, and it with a different look, whereas today people look at me and smile. So I, I, I accept my responsibility and my choices in order to access society in the way I want to access it. What would happen if we all just took this 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 conscientious lens for how we show up for each other? Because that's what you're describing. You're describing having this intentional, conscientious way of showing up in spaces where you're you're thinking about y- your impact on other people. And it's important for this if we we could all find this this way to navigate the world. I do have a caveat in that I understand how when you hold an identity that is so marginalized and oppressed and mistreated and in so many different ways there, I, I understand the anger that comes with all of that. And I always try and keep that in mind as well, because in a way, like to, as you were describing how you show up in, 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 in spaces with other women, I would not expect you to have to hold yourself to that level of, of self-reflection in the moment. I would hope that we could get to a world where you can just show up. Mm, I agree. You know, I agree. You don't have to think agree. about those things. Yeah. And if you're yeah, the angry. Cog- the cognitive load to maintain that concentration and that, as you say, this, this intentionality around what my behavior it is, I'm not relaxed. I'm, yeah. I'm not bringing my whole self to all spaces, but I do bring most of myself to most places. It's just, there are certain places where there's a pinch point where I, I know that, hang on, this is a, this is a good place to, to do this everywhere else. I'll do that. I mean, a classic example is I've chosen not to, to change my voice, have voice coaching or, or even, or even actively manage my voice. So when I'm in those spaces, I will not have a conversation. So if I'm with my wife in the toilets or the changing room, some of that, and she starts talking to me, I'll just look at it and go, I'm not talking. I'll just give that look. I'm not going to say a word in here. Um, if I cough, I'm very conscious about my cough because it's quite a deep sort of ca- cavity cough uh, or sneeze or all those kind of involuntary sounds you make in your body. I'm very conscious of them because what, if, if the doors are shut, people can't see you, they hear you, and they make assumptions. So by being minimalistic, it's not – I wouldn't say I, don't, I feel unsafe – but I'm more worried about other people feeling unsafe more than me. So I don't want to be a threat to anybody. So if I create a persona around me that where people perceive that I'm different, then they may feel less safe. And that so my, my empathy is out there and compassion's out there that I don't want to cause that to anybody else. So not I'm not purely thinking about my safety. I'm just thinking about the the respect for the space. And I think that's beautiful. And it I make, brings my heart incredible amount of joy to know that you do have that sense of safety because that is what we need to have. And at, if we can get to a place where you don't have to be thinking about how you just showing up as you are feeling unsafe to someone else, if we can get to this place, I mean, even when it comes to transgender rights and even across my work with the transgender community, I've been amazed at my own journey at understanding. It's not even just, you know, I used to have a little bit more simplistic view. It's like, oh, I just, I'm in the wrong body or, you know, my gender doesn't match my body parts. And what I've learned over time is that there's so many incredible ways that you can be transgender and be totally comfortable with who you are, whether it's, whether it's you change your voice or you don't change your voice, you change facial hair, you don't change facial hair, There, any kind of gender confirming surgery. There's so many different ways that you can show up as a woman who's transgender or a man who's transgender or a non-binary person who's transgender. There are so many ways you can show up as just who you are. And 
my hope is that we get to a place where you don't have to think about, will somebody else feel unsafe because they might hear a deeper tone of voice in the stall? Because that's just something that's normalized and celebrate. That's just, yeah, there are women who have deeper voices. Yeah, and but it's, okay. it's not it's not just the the queer LGBTQ plus the trans community. It's people who are black experience this all the time. If they're on their own in a, in a white area or a white space, they they're worried that they may be see, be seen as a threat as a black person in a white space. And so it's any marginalized community that's been demonized and misrepresented. It's, it has this covering and masking that they need to do in order to uh, to navigate their spaces. It's so sad to me. As a white woman, I am so keenly aware of how I am perceived. And it's interesting because um, I remember at the beginning when the whole, do you remember the safety pin uh, back? I don't know if this was an, a thing that happened in the UK, but in the US, um, at, at the, when the the election five years ago happened and there were a lot of unsafe spaces uh, being actively cultivated. Uh, we had this thing, it was the safety pin movement. And if you wore a safety pin, you were safe for, you know, I'll go to the bathroom with you. If you're wearing a hijab, you know, I'll sit next to you on the bus, etc. And it was really interesting because all of a sudden I realized I don't get to have that. I don't get to say I'm safe. I don't get to tell you I'm safe. And in fact, it is my responsibility to hold the, the systemic injustices that exist, racism and you know, transphobia and Islamophobia and all of that. I don't get to, I have to hold that as part of my responsibility for, again, for that being an accomplice or a co-conspirator, which I, again, won't call myself that, but I, that is what I aim to be. I have to hold that as a white woman in any space, the perceptions of me, I might not personally deserve those because I do think that I show up for social justice, but I have to hold that because the system and structures are in place that maintain that lack of safety for people who are black or Muslim or trans, I benefit unfairly from the system. This system is built in a lot of ways. And especially there's a whole conversation around specifically being a white woman. The system works for me in a way that I don't get to put down. I don't get to say, okay, I'm just going to take a day off from that. So it is my responsibility to hold this until I am a part of demolishing these systems and structures that are in place that maintain this oppression. That is my responsibility. And I don't get to be deemed as safe until that is true. Erica, thank you. Thank you so much. We've been chatting away for an hour. And I think that's a really good place to leave it with those thoughts you've just given us there. So how can people get hold of you? It's been an amazing conversation. I'm sure there'll be other people who want to uh, have a chat. So what's the best way to get hold of you? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you can, uh, Erica Simon, and I think it's even uh, LinkedIn. My the, the handle is Erica Simon, PhD. And then uh, you can also reach me through uh, Erica, E-R-I-C-A, at seriesb.co. That's S-E-R-I-E-S-B-E dot co. Uh, that's my uh, that, that's my work is around how do we really address uh, toxic work environments. And so you can reach me there and I welcome any future conversations. This has been amazing and I really appreciate and thank you. And it's been such an honor to be in this space with you. Likewise. Thank you. Um, I'll put all of those links in the show notes. So if you've uh, if you're listening, just check the show notes. They'll be there. So finally, it's a, well, a huge thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning in, for getting to the end. I really appreciate this. Um, please put some comments. Tell us what you think of this episode and others. Do subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues. Please share the link, share the love. I have a number of other exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'd be equally, if not 
I don't know, could you be more inspired? I'm sure equally inspired maybe, but over the next few weeks and months. And also if you'd like to be a guest yourself, maybe you've got a story, you've got a message that you'd like to share, um, or you've got some feedback or suggestions, please do let me know to joe.lockwood at uk. And the last thing I'd like to say is my name is Joanne Lockwood, and it's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.